Have you ever had one of those nightmares uh, where you ruined your life? You did something terrible, and it's just ruined your life. Now, maybe you, you dreamed that you forgot to print your sermon when you got up to preach, and maybe that was real. But I do, though. I do have, I do have these dreams where it's Sunday morning, and I've done absolutely nothing to re- prepare, and I have no idea how I'm going <laughs> to handle that. But <clears throat> then there are those dreams where I've done something illegal. I don't even know what it is always. I just know that I have ruined my life. There is... No way getting around it. That's an adult nightmare. Now, what I wouldn't give in those moments to just have one of those Freddy Krueger nightmares. Because what's the worst Freddy can do? He can just kill you. In those dreams, what it feels like is now I have to live with this for the rest of my life. I've ruined it. There's no coming back from it. It's one of those most unnerving kind of panics. It's so much worse than just having a monster chase you. And throughout the dream, I'm just desperately hoping there's some way out of it. Some way. I can fix it, but there's no way to fix it. I've ruined my life. I'm living a Greek tragedy. At least in Greek tragedies, they had this thing called a a deus ex machina, God from the machine. It was this plot device where at the very end of the Greek tragedy, this God shows up, this Greek God shows up and rescues them from a problem that's otherwise irresolvable. So in my dream, I need that deus ex machina. I need that help. And that, that phrase, that Latin phrase, comes from what would happen on the play itself. There was a machine, a crane, that would lift the actor who was playing the god and, and allow him to make this dramatic entrance. So this crane would suddenly display this god. The god would fix the most difficult part of the plot, something that was seemingly unfixable. And it was so common in Greek and Roman tragedies that the Roman poet Horace, he criticized these playwrights who would resort to it so easily. He, he said, do not bring a god onto the stage unless the problem deserves a god to, to solve it. Well, much later, Martin Luther, when he was reading these chapters in Romans and Galatians and, and finding out this truth that Paul's talking about in Romans 1 through 3, he gave a nod to Horace and he said, here is a problem which needs God to solve it. So when you, you come to truly understand what Paul's been teaching, and you understand that, that it's true of your life, you're going to feel as I do in those nightmares. I mean, you have ruined your life. But God has done something to solve that problem for everyone who believes. So you know that feeling that you get when you wake up from those dreams. And you realize that problem was solved because it was just a dream. The feeling that you get, that joy and relief that you get from those dreams, waking up from those dreams, it's nothing compared to what you experience when you come to know this truth, what God has done for us in Christ, for everyone who believes. So turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, if you haven't already done so. Again, that's on page 885 in the Pew Bible, so Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at starting at verse 21, and again, that's page 885, and we're going to see God's solution to our sin problem, the sin problem that Paul's been talking about up to this point in Romans. So here's God's solution, justification by faith. Paul is in these verses, he's going to help us understand what justification by faith means, and what we're going to do is we're going to 
explain, we're going to follow his explanation by answering three questions about justification by faith. For whom does justification work? How does justification work? And does justification work? For whom does it work? How does it work? And does it work? So if you look at verse 21, Paul begins, but now, now beginning at chapter 1 of verse 18, he'd been explaining that we're all under sin, under the power of sin. All of us, both Jewish people and Gentiles, everyone is facing God's just wrath because of our sin. And then Paul turns here and says, but now, Greg Gilbert, he explains the significance of of those words in his book, What is the Gospel? He writes, but, I think that must be the most powerful word a human being can speak. It's small, but it has the power to sweep away everything that has gone before it. Coming after bad news like we just heard, it has the power to lift the eyes and restore hope. More than any other word that can be spoken by a human tongue, it has the ability to change everything. The plane went down, but no one was hurt. You have cancer, but it is easily treatable. Sadly, the but doesn't always come. Sometimes the sentence stops, and all we get is the bad news. Thank God the bad news of human sin and God's judgment is not the end of the story. If the Bible had ended with Paul's declaration that the whole world will stand silenced before the judgment throne of God, there would be no hope for us at all. There would be only despair, but there it is again. Thank God there is more. You are a sinner destined to be condemned, but God has acted to save sinners like you. Back in Romans 1.18, Paul said, the wrath of God is revealed. Now he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And I said back in chapter 1 that that word revealed is often used in an eschatological sense. It's used to talk about something that happens at the end of time. Romans 1.18, God's end-time condemnation is already being revealed. But now something else has been disclosed. Something having to do, again, with God's end-time judgment. But it's the other side, the opposite side of it. So the righteousness of God here, it's a phrase that points to the end of time when God will declare certain people to be righteous when they stand before him. That's what justification has to do with. God declaring certain people to have the status of righteous. And that doesn't just mean that they haven't sinned. That status means that their lives are approved by God. They have lived in a way that is righteous. They have actually done what God created them to do and imaged his righteous behavior. So they're in right relationship to God. They're image bearers who have done their purpose. They've imaged God's righteousness. And and as I mentioned in past weeks, the basis of God's evaluation is works. It's what we've actually done. That's what Paul says earlier. So God's judgment isn't hypothetical. It's based on what we've actually done. The problem is what Paul's explained in Romans 3.20. No one will be considered righteous by their own efforts to keep God's law. God's law, it... It had been given to Israel to picture what it looks like to live out as a good image bearer, to live out God's holiness. And what Paul's saying is no Jewish person actually carries out that law perfectly. So there's neither a Jewish person nor a Gentile who lives perfectly, lives a perfectly righteous life. 
There's no hope to be considered righteous before God based on your own efforts. But now God's pulled back this curtain to reveal that you, a person, is declared righteous apart from the law. There's a way to secure that that status of being righteous in the end without trying to accomplish it by yourself or in your own faulty efforts. You can be declared righteous by faith in Jesus. But notice the nature of this righteousness of God. He, I think Paul begins here, and he's already kind of correcting a wrong idea that we might have. We could imagine that this is something that's completely brand new, that God just has done that it didn't relate to the past. But he says here that it has been manifested. It's not that it didn't exist prior. He's just saying now... It's revealed. Now it's been seen. It did exist, but it wasn't seen until it's manifested. And he's going to go on to explain that a little bit more. Here all he says is the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's the way of saying the Old Testament bears witness to this. The Old Testament talked about this. This has always been God's plan. When God gave his people the law under the Old Covenant, he told them, you're a sinful, stubborn people. Your hearts, he said, your inner person, your, your feelings, your thinking, your desires, they are uncircumcised, they're corrupt. Then all along the story, God showed how he was going to take care of that problem for his people. You remember when God made the covenant with Abraham? That was made in chapter 15. We were there many years ago. There's this procedure where a person making a covenant would cut up these animals in half and make a path. And the people involved in that covenant were supposed to pass through that covenant and say, binding themselves to the covenant, say, may I be as these animals are, dead, if I break this covenant. Who passed through the path when God made a covenant with Abraham? The Lord alone He's demonstrating, he's saying as it were, I will be the one to make sure that this covenant is kept and I will deal, I will be responsible for if either of us should break it. And of course, he would not break it. Then the Lord established the sacrificial system and he did that to teach people how he would ensure that the covenant could be kept. He would provide for his sinful people's breaking of the covenant. And he also established a king to represent his people, to be someone who stands in for the people. And he also promised a suffering servant, a righteous servant of the Lord who would come and make the many righteous. So the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they witnessed to this plan that God had before he even created the world. The plan was there, but it didn't, nobody saw it until he sent his son. That's when it was manifested. That's when it was seen. So God's plan was from the very beginning to give righteous status, that status he requires through his son Jesus. But whom does that include? Who is it that will experience God's solution? For whom does justification work? 
Paul describes that in verse 22. He describes righteousness here as the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The major stress of this new section that he began when he said, but now, that's a new section, and it goes all the way through chapter 4, and the emphasis is on faith. He's explaining that God's justification is by faith. And what you see here is that this is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive. The righteousness of God is for all. But it's exclusive in that it's for all who believe. So you see this kind of inclusivity and exclusivity throughout the New Testament when it talks about the gospel. Think of John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, look at how inclusive God's love is. This is for the whole world. But who did he give his son for? Or why did he give his son? That whoever believes would not perish, but have eternal life. So God's gift of his son was exclusively for those who believe. This righteousness of God is for all who believe. Paul goes on to explain the inclusivity here when he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul's been arguing since chapter 1. Chapters 1 through 3. All are under the power of sin. There's no difference in our plight. All, both Jewish people and Gentiles, have sinned. With those three words, he's summarizing what he's been teaching. What he said about the Gentiles in chapter 1 and verse 18 through 32, and what he said about the Jewish people in chapter 2. He sums it up by just saying, all have sinned. And then he goes on to tell us the ongoing effect of that in the second part of verse 23. Apart from Christ, sinful humanity, they're presently, we are presently falling short of the glory of God. That verb translated fall short, it's in the present tense. And in Greek, you choose the present tense to describe something as an ongoing activity. So this ongoing effect of our sinful state is that we are lacking the glory of God in the present. Paul's going to go on in chapter 5 and verse 2 to talk about the hope of the glory of God that believers have. He's going to go on to mention in 8.30 that believers are glorified, which relates to being conformed to the image of his son in the previous verse. So the hope that believers look forward to is sharing in the glory of God. And that's what Paul says here we, we all fall short of. We all lack. So remember what Paul said in the first chapter. And, and this, he goes on to say, applies to everyone. He said, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Now that word honor is often translated glorify in other places. And in that place, even in the CSB and NIV, it's translated glorify. Same idea. So from the beginning, humanity, we were created in God's image, as I said, so that we could reflect God's glory. Adam and Eve did that. They reflected, they, they shared in the glory of God in their lives. Then they rejected God. They turned from reflecting his glorious character. They chose their own path. So they didn't function as God's image was intended. And, and Paul's saying here that we all fall short of that glory from that point in, in Adam and Eve's life till now. So this glory of God, it's really an overlap in meeting with righteousness. We need to glorify God. That's what we were made for. 
We need to share in God's glory. We need to be conformed to his glorious character. And that, if we were to do that, that's what it means to be righteous. That's what we are needed. That's why we need God's righteousness, because we lack this. We lack God's glory. We fail to glorify him. We fail to conform to his glory. We need him to confer on us the status of righteous from without, not because of what we've done. Because what we do is not glorify him. And since that's true of everyone, Paul's explaining here that the only way to receive this righteousness, the only way to receive God's righteous status is the same for everyone. He's been arguing. The Jewish person doesn't have a a different route to righteousness. They never have by way of the law. That's not a different route. He already said that in chapter 3 and verse 20. The only way to receive God's approval in the end to be considered righteous is exclusively through faith in Jesus. Understand the way, though, that, that Paul talks about faith here. He doesn't say, for all who have believed. If he had said that, that might direct our attention to a one-time decision. That's not the way he talks. He uses, he says, for all who believe, and he specifically uses the present tense. Remember what I just said about the present tense. It's describing ongoing action. So the righteous status, it's not simply for someone who had faith at some point in time. Paul's saying, this is for all who believe with an enduring faith. Jesus talked about a faith that does not endure in his parable of the soils. That is not a saving faith. True and saving faith endures So that's whom justification is for. All who believe with an ongoing, enduring faith. But how does it work? How does justification work? That's what we see in verse 24, in the first part of verse 25. To begin with, being justified means that God has declared a person righteous at the final judgment. That's what it's talking about. But here Paul's talking about this declaration that's happening as soon as someone believes in the present. So what he's going to do in these two verses is explain how this end time status can can belong to a person in the present. So verse 24, it begins by saying, those who believe are justified by his grace as a gift. That fits very well with what he just said about righteousness that's apart from the law. We could say it's apart from works of the law. This declaration of of righteous status, it's not based on a believer's merit. It's not earned by our effort. It's given to the believer as a gift. It's given on the basis of grace, he says. That's undeserved kindness. So righteousness that we receive, it's from without. It's not something that we do for ourselves. It's not given for what we've done. It's given apart from anything we've done. Not because we deserve it, but because God gives us something we don't deserve. How does he do that? He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, do you remember where the Old Testament talked about redemption? Old Testament talked about that with the Exodus, where God redeemed his people from their slavery. Remember, Jacob's family, they went to Egypt, and then they grew and grew and became this very numerous very large group of people. And there came a Pharaoh 
who decided to enslave them, make them labor for him. And, and so God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go out into the wilderness to worship me. And Pharaoh said, no, he refused to do that. And that was all, God even says, that's all part of my plan to show my might and to rescue my people, the people that he'd chosen. So that's what the Lord did. He, he redeemed his people through those 10 plagues, redeemed them from their slavery. That's what the image that Paul's drawing on for these, these believers to understand what he's done. This is what God the Father has done through his son, Christ Jesus. When the, the term redemption has to do with the payment that a person would make to release somebody from their slavery. That's what God did for Israel in, in Exodus. He provided for their release from slavery to Egypt. And he then made them his own. And Paul's saying that's what God's done for every person who believes in Christ. Jesus the Messiah came. And while we were under the power of sin, Jesus did what was necessary to release us from that slavery. And then beginning in verse 25, he explains what was involved in releasing us, redeeming us from the power of sin. God did that through Jesus, but more specifically, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And that term propitiation, there's a lot of arguments over that. There are some people who are very offended that that we would translate that propitiation because it has to do with averting wrath. And the way they view wrath is kind of the way that the pagan gods would would get upset with people. They were very capricious and never knew why or how they were going to become angry with you and and so you when found out when you found out that a god was angry with you you had to do something to propitiate their wrath you had to do something that would appease them calm them down well that's not what paul's talking about here but he is talking about wrath he is talking about averting wrath just not like that back in romans 118 it says the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men god is rightly angry with us for our sin And this propitiation is how God is providing the just resolution to his anger. But notice how different that is from the pagan situation. It's not somebody scrambling around because of some capricious God's anger. This is God who put forward his son as a propitiation. God did this. God was right to be angry with us, but he also is the one who justly deals with the problem for us through his son. Now, Paul's picture here, it doesn't come from the pagan world. Again, it comes from the Old Testament. This word, translated propitiation, it was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the mercy seat. You remember, in fact, that's how Tyndale translates this in his translation. The mercy seat was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember that from Indiana Jones. He didn't come up with it. So in the Old Testament, that is the ark that God, the box, this golden box that God told Moses to make and then put in the tabernacle and then later the temple. And in that box, among other things, was a record of the covenant that God had made with Israel. Now, Israel broke that covenant repeatedly. It kept breaking it. Yet God established this way for them not to be cut off because of their sin. He pictured it by means of sacrifices, especially the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So on the Day of uh, of Atonement, God established this yearly sacrifice 
to atone for people's sins. And what would happen is there'd be two goats. The high priest would take two goats. One of them, on one he'd put his hands, and then he would release that goat into the wilderness, away from God's people. It was a way to picture their sins for that year being taken away from them. And then on the other goat, put his hands, and he would sacrifice that that goat. And he would take the blood from that goat, and he would sprinkle it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. Remember that the covenant that they had broke was underneath that mercy seat. Their sin, as it were, had, had marred, had covered, and had messed up the covenant. It had messed up that relationship. And so the punishment was death for breaking the covenant. But again, remember the picture that Abraham showed us. Or God's relationship with Abraham. God took the responsibility for their failure. He made a way for their sins to be paid. So he pictured the goat as a representative of the people. Their lives, they they were worthy of dying for their sin. And yet that goat then becomes a substitute. The goat dies in their place. And his blood, which represents his life, is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And it's, it's like a, it's, it's not that it's covering over, it's not paint, it's like soap. It's ex- expunging that sin, it's washing it away, cleansing the guilt that the people owed for their sin. So the requirement, again, for their failure, their breaking of the covenant was death, and it's met by the sacrifice so that God could then continue to dwell with his people. So what Paul's saying here is that God put forward Jesus, his son, publicly so that everyone could see, wasn't tucked away behind the curtain, it was public for everyone to see that he was the mercy seat, that he was the atoning sacrifice, that by his blood, that's a reference to the cross, God had taken care of, had dealt with, had provided for the sin that rightly had angered him. So The cross is an atoning sacrifice that deals with our sin. And by it, it frees everyone who trusts in Jesus. Frees us from our slavery to sin. Now, the way the Greek text reads here, it reads, through faith in his blood. I think the ESV and and many other translations, they do a good job of translating that in a way we can understand by rearranging the order so that we don't say that it's, by faith in his blood. It's atonement in his blood. But it's also an atonement, a propitiation that is through faith. Or as the ESV puts it, to be received by faith. Now I actually think that could cause some confusion. I think through faith is a little bit more clear. Because Paul isn't saying that God has done his part and now we have to do our part in order to accomplish atonement. Sometimes that's kind of how it sounds. What Paul's saying, and what the Greek is is saying, is atonement is accomplished. The payment is made. There's nothing whatsoever that we can do to contribute to that. We're not contributing to what God has done for us by our faith. The benefits are experienced as a gift. As in freely, as in you don't do something in order to make sure and experience those benefits. 
So I don't think it's good for us to say that faith is applying Christ's sacrifice to our lives. That is not how the Bible talks. And I think it gives us the wrong idea. Faith, just think about what faith is. Faith is the belief that Jesus' sacrifice provided for our atonement. That that Jesus' sacrifice brought us back in relationship to God. That belief changes the way we relate to God. From then on, we view our lives differently. We begin to experience this relationship with God. We interact with him as one who's accepted by God. So through faith, we begin to depend on Jesus as the reason why we're accepted by God, why our sins are forgiven, why we can have fellowship with him, why we can even now, by the power of his spirit, serve him instead of serving our sin. So faith is the point at which that change occurs. Faith is not something that we accomplish. It's the point where we begin to view ourselves as those who live in right relationship, who benefit from what Christ has done. It's the turning point where we begin to experience the benefits of what Christ has done. It's not how we procure those benefits for ourselves. I don't think that's the best way to talk. Because it seems to say that we have contributed to the progress, to the process. We have not. Not even by our faith have we contributed anything to our redemption, to our atonement. I think that's giving us too much credit, and I think it's, it's unhelpful. And it also doesn't fit with the Old Testament picture that was telling us what this was all about. The act of atonement was accomplished for the Israelites. They did nothing. They did nothing else to apply that atonement to them. Their belonging to the Old Covenant began with circumcision, something they did not do for themselves. For the New Covenant believer, belonging to that New Covenant begins with circumcision of the heart. And where do we see circumcision of the heart? Where do we see new birth in our faith? So the person who experienced the benefits of the Old Covenant atonement, they were marked off by those Old Covenant markers. The person who experiences the benefit of this New Covenant atonement who receives this righteous status, they're marked off by faith. That's how you experience this righteous status. So Jesus took on the end time judgment of God so that those, everyone who believes in him experiences that declaration of righteousness in the end of time. Now that kind of leads me to an application for how we tell people about the gospel. There are some who would tell people, Jesus paid for your sin without qualification. And I don't think that's helpful. They're trying to encourage somebody to believe in Jesus, but they tell them, your sin debt has been paid, and they don't qualify it. If you tell me my debt's been paid, is there anything else I have to do? Imagine that you are speeding. I'm sure nobody does this. Imagine you're speeding down the highway. Police officer pulls you over, gives you a $200 ticket. Now imagine somebody pays your ticket. Is there anything else that needs to happen? Do you have to pay a ticket too? Imagine that you paid, that somebody else paid your ticket, but the police still require you to pay your ticket in the end. What would you think of that situation? 
You think, you already got your payment. You don't need it again. Well, understand, if Jesus paid your sin debt, you will not be sent to the lake of fire. Some people are sent to the lake of fire in the end. So what's going on? Is God requiring that payment twice? Is this double jeopardy? Paul is actually explaining the limitation to Christ's payment. It's for all who believe. In the end, Christ will not have paid for those who do not believe. So when we tell people the gospel, we need to do so as Paul does. We need to always include this qualification. Jesus provides atonement for everyone who believes. He provides redemption for everyone who believes. There's an invitation. In in saying it that way, there's an invitation to people to believe. To respond with faith. So I think those are helpful qualifiers. To, to accurately convey the actual good news. We should always include the fact that the, the benefits of Christ's death are only experienced through faith. Now, Paul says this is how justification works. By faith, through the redemption, by means of Christ's atoning death. But does that really work? Does justification work? Is there a consistency in what God's been doing? Does justification by faith in Jesus really work? And Paul demonstrates that it does. The second part of verse 25 and especially in verse 26. He begins by showing us how what he's told us, how somebody can be declared righteous, how that is completely consistent with what God has been doing in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. We need to keep in mind how important the Old Covenant context is to what Paul's been arguing. Many of us lose sight of how much the Old Testament relates to our salvation. This salvation that's been extended to Gentiles is from the Jewish Messiah. Our salvation is part of of the Old Testament story. It's an, outgrowth of, it's an outgrowth of what God was doing in the Old Testament before Jesus came. That's what Paul's been showing. The way to understand salvation is to take these images, these pictures from the Old Testament, propitiation, atoning sacrifice, redemption, and apply them to us through Jesus. So there is both continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments. There's continuity with what God has been doing. What happened to Jesus was part of what God planned before he created the world. This was not plan B after the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. Understand that their rejection was a fixed part of God's plan. They they freely acted, and yet they were only doing what God predetermined to take place according to Acts 4. So the discontinuity is seen in how these pictures come to fulfillment. We no longer need a day of atonement sacrifice. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. So what Paul does first is he shows us that justification by faith in Jesus is 
is how God shows that he's righteous in how he's been acting in the Old Testament. He had been passing over sins through the sacrificial system, but as the writer to the Hebrews explains, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We need a human to take our place, not bulls or goats. They can't take our place. So God passed over his old covenant people's sins because he was looking forward to the fulfillment of what those pictures pointed to. He was righteous to pass over their sins, not really because of the sacrifices, but because of what they pointed to, always pointing to the fulfillment, which was Jesus. Then in verse 26, he says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That phrase translated at the present time, it's more literally at the now time, using the same word now that began the section. He's talking about this present historical standpoint. God made this atoning sacrifice public at this point in history to show that he's righteous, to show that he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you don't believe the gospel, you could look at what the Bible teaches and think, what in the world? Why, why would God, why, why would this be a religion? It, it could seem violent. It could seem unnecessary. What Paul's doing here is he's explaining why this is very necessary, that this is the only way to save sinners. And it begins with a just God. We could translate that righteous. Same word translated righteous. God is righteous. He always does what's right. The question is, how do we know what's right? There has to be a standard. There has to be something that establishes what's right. Otherwise, you can't call anything right. It has no meaning. There has to be a standard. So what's the standard for what's right in our universe? The only way for there to be anything we can call right is if there is an intentionality behind the universe. So what's right is what fits with that intentionality. The Bible says God created the world with intentionality. He created it with purpose. So what is right, what is righteous, is what fits with God's intentions. God is the standard for what is righteous, what is right. Now that could sound pretty circular. What Paul's trying to explain is that God has been completely consistent, perfectly consistent with who he is and what he's planned his intentions for his creation. He's very clear that humanity was, again, created to imitate his righteousness, to imitate his righteous and loving character. And he's equally clear that everyone who fails to do that is righteously, rightfully, justly worthy of his wrath and punishment. So if that's true, how in the world can God not punish sinners? If doing what's right is punishing sin, as God both teaches and does in Israel's history, how can he not punish sinners and still be righteous? And more than that, how can he be righteous and declare sinners to be righteous? That's what Paul's talking about here. This is why God did what he did in Jesus Christ. It was absolutely necessary so through the revelation that God brought about through his old covenant people, he taught that someone can represent others. 
that within his universe, there can be a representative. So the person who's failed to live as they were created to live and deserves to experience eternal punishment rather than eternal life with God, that person can have someone take their place. And that substitute that takes their place, they must be truly righteous. They, they need to actually deserve that status to be a substitute. So that means that not only have they not sinned, but that person must have lived their life in perfect conformity to God's righteousness. That representative can substitute their approved life for the sinner's unapproved life. Now, that's what Jesus did. His approval, his righteous status is given, is granted to an unrighteous person. And the debt that that person owes, that what they owe to be released from the power of sin, it's paid by his punishment in their place. That's how God can still be righteous when it comes to declaring sinners to be righteous by faith in Jesus. He considers them to have Jesus' truly righteous status and to have their sin that he's rightly angry about truly paid for. So their freedom from sin and their status of righteous is given to them by Jesus. He's the representative of everyone who believes that he is their representative. Jesus is really righteous. And he actually pays the punishment that's owed. Now, that's amazing. I mean, do you realize that that was our situation? We deserved hell. We deserved separation from God for eternity. But God took care of the problem. I mean, the situation we're in, you can't come up with a worse situation to be facing. There's nothing that you could imagine that could be worse than knowing that you have sinned against a holy God that you are worthy of eternal punishment. That should cause a panic and a fear and, a, and just an outright loss of any sense of what you can do more than anything else that could happen to you. I mean, it's exactly like this, this dreams that, these dreams that I've had, you know, that, that feeling that you have. You've ruined your life. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. And what Paul's saying here is what you couldn't do. What, there, was, there was no possible solution from your end. God has arrived. God has actually done what you could never do. What only he could do. We had no hope. But God has saved us. This is the grace that awakens in us the reality that our life is a nightmare. That's grace. If you never get that sense that your life is a train wreck when it comes to God, if you never realize that you're a sinner deserving his wrath, you haven't experienced that grace yet. We don't deserve to experience that. But the good news... God reveals to us also is that grace. It relieves us of that panic and fear. Just like John Newton's hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and 
grace my fears relieve. So I hope today you recognize your one true deus ex machina. You know, your one true solution from God that no one else could do. Only God can solve. Believe that he solved it by his son. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Live your life in grateful service to the one who's done it. Join me in prayer. Jesus, Paul tells us that that you died so that those who live might no longer live for ourselves, but live for you who died for us. You didn't just die to rescue us from our, our terrible predicament of eternity in hell. You rescued us from our slavery to sin. You rescued us to change our lives. You rescued us to direct us away from what had been sending us rightly to hell. Help us to recognize just this amazing grace that you provided for us by your righteous life, by your justifying death and resurrection. Enable us by just the recollection of what you've done to by your spirit have the power to serve you. Have the power to say, we don't want to keep serving our sin. Look at what you've done to rescue us from that. Grant us, again by your spirit, a renewed desire to, to serve you, to follow you, not in order to save ourselves, not in any way to contribute anything to what you've done, but because you've done this for us. And Jesus, we ask that you would reveal yourself to anyone here who is not trusting in you. By your spirit, you would reveal that they are going to face your judgment one day. That apart from faith in you, when they see you one day, it would not be to be received by you, but to be rejected by you because of their sin. They would see the rightness of that judgment. They would see now this amazing love that you've demonstrated, that they would recognize it and run to you. And then we ask that you would grant us wisdom as we are witnesses to you, witnesses to what you've done, that we would be faithful to direct people always and immediately to faith in you, to never give anyone the impression that everything's been accomplished and there's no more necessary thing that marks them off. There is no more thing that they can do to contribute. But help us not to deceive people to think that they don't need to believe, that they don't need to continue in that faith. Give us wisdom to share the good news honestly with people. 
clearly with people. So that we can magnify you, magnify your Father through you, so that we can, again, rest in this good news, enjoy, rejoice in it, live our lives in light of it. Thank you for what you've done for us. Amen.